Good morning, everyone. Um, so, we're looking at Colossians uh, today. Um, I don't know whether you read it right through. Um, I listened to um, David Suchet reading it to me yesterday, but I did read it right through. It's, uh, it's good to read books, Bible books, from the beginning. Uh, just read them through, rather than just, as we often do, pick and choose a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, so, today it's Colossians. First thing I want to emphasise is that it's a letter. Um, we forget that sometimes. If you've got an old-fashioned Bible and it's got the word epistle in, that might confuse you. It's a letter. And those of us who are old enough to remember letters that used to come through the, let- the letterbox, um, with, you know, Dear Dave, written on them, we remember the sort of thing. Today it's emails, isn't it? If you get a letter through the letterbox, it's more likely to be a doctor's appointment or exam results or something. Um, but it's a letter. Paul sat down and he wrote this letter to the people in Colossae, a church group of people, to tell them things. And I think that's the first thing that we need to remember. Okay, here's my breakdown of Colossians. Um, first eight verses are greetings and thanksgiving. And then in chapter one, there's Paul's prayer for the Colossian Christians, followed by a beautiful section on the supremacy glory and greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come into the bit that I'm going to be talking about in a moment, Paul's work for the Lord, or Paul's big message, as you've called it today. It's a good one. Then into chapter 2 he talks about false teaching and warns them about (coughs) false teaching. And then in chapter 3 he moves on to living the true Christian life and gives instructions for Christian households. And then finally in chapter 4 we have personal messages and greetings. So that's the breakdown, as I see it, of um, the book of Colossians. Colossians is a church that Paul did not found, and it's a church that he'd never visited. So unlike some of the letters where Paul's saying, remember when I was with you, he doesn't say that in Colossians because he'd never been there. Um, So they were a group of Christians that had heard the gospel through some other method, They'd come to know the Lord, they'd committed themselves as disciples, they'd become a church of God, and Paul is now writing to them as a senior person, but who had never actually been there himself. What was Colossae? Well, Colossae was a city in the Roman province of Asia. Today it's called Turkey, uh, the place where where Colossae is. And it's in the Lycus Valley, near to Laodicea and Hierapolis, and I'll show you a map in a moment. Apparently, Colossae had been a very important city, but by the time Paul is writing, it had been reduced, and it was no longer an important city. If you've ever been to a place, a seaside resort or somewhere, and you read the blurb, and it says, oh, way back in the Middle Ages, this was an important fishing village, or this was important for that or that. Nowadays, it's much reduced. Well, that was what Colossae was, a city that was no longer important. And it, the church in Colossae was mostly made up of Gentiles. So he's not writing a Jewish man to a Jewish audience. He's writing as a Jewish Christian to a church that was mainly Gentile, although there were some Jewish Christians in it. And he'd heard many encouraging reports about the Colossians, but he knew there was also the prospect, the possibility of them being threatened by false teaching. And some of what he writes in the letter is to um, contradict that. So here's where Colossae is. Those of you who know your New Testament and know Revelation chapter 1 will recognise 
If you look there, there's the seven churches in, in Revelation, starting with Ephesus, and then going up to Smyrna, and Pergamum, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So it goes in a kind of loop like that. And down at the bottom, near Laodicea, is Colossae, which is very close to Laodicea. So that's where the people were that we're discussing today. And we're going to have four talks. The first one is mine in a moment, um, Paul's work for the Lord and Paul's big message. Then we've got one um, linking chapters one and chapter two, the son whom God loves. And then thirdly, um, from chapter one, praying for the Colossian church. And then finally, prayer, evangelism and partnership from chapter four. So that's our talks today and we look forward to that. So, let's read the passage together. That's my, my talk. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, to chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are, and how firm your faith in Christ is. So that's the first passage that we're um, studying today. And the committee have called this Paul's big message. So we're looking to see what was driving Paul in his work for the Lord. And it struck me that it, talk, it divides into four um, areas. Paul was joyfully serving. He was disclosing the mystery. He was bringing disciples to maturity and he was contending for what is true. And it's those four areas I'd just like to share with you for the rest of my talk uh, just now. So first of all then, joyfully serving. As Paul was serving the Lord as a leader, as a disciple, as a missionary, um, as a writer of scripture, he was rejoicing in suffering. Now you'll notice the strange expression at the beginning that I read to you this morning because he says I 
fill up in my body what is lacking of Christ's suffering, Christ's afflictions. <clears throat> Let's make one thing absolutely clear. Paul is not talking about the afflictions that Christ suffered on the cross for our sins. There's no, nothing lacking in that. And even if there was, Paul certainly, and I certainly, or you certainly, couldn't have made it up. Uh, so he's not talking about that. Paul's talking about an ongoing persecution, ongoing suffering. Remember the um, word that Paul heard on the Damascus Road? Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul could have said, I'm not persecuting you. I've never met you, but oh, oh yes, you are. Paul was persecuting Jesus because he was persecuting Jesus' followers. And so there's a suffering that goes on in our world that's um, like to do with our Christian lives, to do with our day-to-day -day living. And Paul says that he's adding to that. He's, he's taking on some of that in his life. It's a peculiar expression, but it certainly doesn't mean anything to do with the sufferings of Christ for our sins on the cross at Calvary. And he was rejoicing in suffering. I find that odd. I hate suffering. Um, Ruth will tell you, if I get a headache, I'm a, like a, uh, unsufferable. But uh, Paul was rejoicing in suffering because he knew that what he was doing was for God. He knew it was something to do with the extension of the kingdom of God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, he rejoiced. I don't think the Bible ever tells us to want suffering, but when it does come into our lives, we can deal with it properly, can't we? The second thing was he was happy to be a servant. I think that's fascinating. Coming from the man who was probably the top Christian of his day, he was happy to be a servant. And we need to take that on board. Sometimes we can get to the situation where we think <coughs> we're, 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 we're too, we're too uh, above that. Um, other people, more menial people can do those jobs. We should never, ever think that way. Whatever we do for the Lord, we do together as servants. Whether it's preparing for ministry, whether it's moving the chairs after an event, or sweeping the floor, or whatever's going on, or taking a, a class of children at a youth club. Whatever we do, we do as servants for the Lord. But we are servants. And the big thing about a servant is they get told what to do. A servant doesn't say, well, I think. The boss says, no, you do that, and you do that, and you see to that. And that's what the Lord does to us. He gives us jobs to do, and we as servants get on with them. And he had something to proclaim and teach. Isn't it great that he wasn't just waffling? He wasn't just making something up as he went along. He had something from the Lord that was really important. And when we meet together as a church, and when somebody opens the word of God to us and gives us something, it should be something really important, shouldn't it? It should be something that God has given us that's, that matters in our lives. And he contended with energy. Paul was someone who didn't put his feet up. Some of us get tired and we put our feet up, and so we, so we should, as long as we've done some work beforehand. But Paul, Paul contended with energy. He kept going and kept going and kept going. I don't know where he got his energy from. But he was a great, enthusiastic Christian. And there's a challenge for me and maybe a challenge for all of us today. How energetically enthusiastic are you and I about the Lord's things, about our personal faith, about our church life, about our work that we do for the Lord together as brothers and sisters. There's a verse in chapter 3 I often refer to as the fuse verse because it strikes me that it's a verse that has, plays the same role that a fuse does in an electric circuit. You know, the fuse is that little tiny little bit of wire that's meant to melt if you put too much power through it and something goes wrong. Whatever you do, 
Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that, it, that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, whatever I do, let's do it for the Lord Jesus. And then we move on to the second bit, which is disclosing the mystery. Now, a mystery in the New Testament is something that had, want, that had been hidden but is now revealed. I think of it as like an announcement because there are some things that are in the Old Testament and any godly person seeking with God's help could find it because it's there in the, in the Bible. It was there in the Bible that Jesus and the disciples had. But a mystery isn't one of those things. A mystery is something new that God has revealed and Paul has got a mystery to reveal. And there's two ways of looking at this mystery. The first is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and the second is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And as you read through the New Testament, there's other areas where he talks about the mystery. Whenever you read that mystery, it's the same idea, something which had previously been hidden but has now been revealed. Some translations translate it as secret, but it's the same idea, something that had been a secret and is now being revealed. So the first bit then is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's one of those expressions that I've had banded around for years, and it's, the trouble with those sort of expressions is you can start to band them around without really thinking what they mean. What does it mean, Christ in you, the hope of glory? I think the New Living Translation gets, gets it spot on. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. I think that's what Paul is saying. Christ is living in me, and because of that, I have the absolute assurance that one day I'm going to be with him and share his glory forever, for all eternity. Um, the, the mystery that, um, of Christ, of course, the Messiah was always in the Old Testament. The Messiah was there from the beginning. But the idea that the Messiah was Jesus... It was what was revealed. And of course, the Lord Jesus himself spoke, didn't he, about being in us. Christ in you. In what way can Christ be in you? The Lord Jesus Christ is a, has a body. He rose from the dead. And he wasn't a ghost. Remember, touch me and see. I, I've got physical hands. Not like a ghost. So how can somebody with a body live inside somebody with a body? That doesn't make any sense to me. So how, how does that work? Well, the Lord Jesus said... Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. So the Lord Jesus definitely taught about living with and in disciples of the Lord Jesus. And the Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. So how does this work? Well, in 1 John we read, and this is how we know that we live in him, and he in us, he has given us of his spirit. The Holy Spirit is also known as the spirit of Jesus. And the Bible teaches, and you can see, read about it in John chapters 14 and 16, the Bible teaches that when we come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, when we're born again, saved, become a Christian, 
that the Holy Spirit is put inside us and lives with us forever. And that's the Spirit of Jesus living in us. And that's how the Lord Jesus lives in us today, through his Spirit that he has given us. And it's an absolute guarantee that he's never going to leave us. He's never going to chuck us away. He's never going to allow us to, to wander away irreparably. And then the other way is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The mystery of God is Christ, or as the New Living and the New American Standard Bible say, Christ himself. It's the identity of the Messiah. The Old Testament prophesied the Messiah. Isaiah is full of prophecies of the Messiah. If you go right back to Genesis, there's prophecies of the, of the Messiah. But it wasn't revealed that it would be Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus born in Bethlehem, Jesus the son of Mary. That wasn't in the Old Testament. And as we come to the New Testament, we discover this mystery is revealed to us. And so there's two ways of looking at the mystery. Christ in us, not revealed in the Old Testament, but told to us by the Lord Jesus, and Christ himself, who he is, his identity as Jesus the Messiah. So, the second thing, the third thing is bringing disciples to maturity. And Paul says that we're to be encouraged in heart, united in love, having full understanding, to become immune from deceit, and to be disciplined and firm in our faith. That'd be great, wouldn't it, if we got to that stage? How do we get there? How do we become encouraged and united and having full understanding and becoming immune from scammers? Because that's basically what he's talking about. You know, the sort of people that phone you up and tell you that they're from your bank and there's been a problem on your account and please give me your PIN number so I can sort it out. And these were spiritual scammers that Paul was warning them about and to be disciplined in their faith. Doesn't this sound a bit like church life to you and me? It's how we do it, isn't it? We come together as a church and we rely on one another and we take comfort from one another and we encourage one another and we're united together as a church. That's what we're meant to be. And we're disciplined in our faith and when we're a bit down, somebody else encourages us. Encourages us. And when they're, they're a bit down, we encourage them. <clears throat> and then fourthly and finally, contending for what is true. And he talks about the Word of God. He talks about knowing the riches of complete understanding, and he talks about Christ. I want to suggest today that we really do need to be absolutely confident in our Bibles as the Word of God. An awful lot of people, the vast majority of people today, do not believe that. They would say the Bible is a lot of nonsense, or some would say, oh, it's a very good religious book. And others would say it contains some very useful things, some very useful teaching. There's bits of it that are really, we couldn't do without. But we go further than that. We believe the Bible is God's word. And that makes all the difference. If it's the word of God, then it's true right through. It may be that I don't understand all the bits of it. There may be some bits that perplex me. But nevertheless, it is God's word. And that's important, isn't it? That's why we read it every day, because we're listening to God speaking to us. And if you've got out of the habit of reading a Bible, your Bible every day, then please get back into it. It's really quite important. And then knowing the riches of complete understanding. As we delve into the Bible, as we read it, as we listen to people ministering, as we study it, 
then we get the Holy Spirit gives us understanding. And it's like being given riches, like stumbling across um, something important and realizing that's worth, that's valuable. That's what we do when we're reading. We just stumble across stuff that's valuable. And of course, the really important thing for all of us is our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The more we learn about him, the more we see him in action. And so we know what is true from God's word because we read it and it is the word of God. We can go deeper into what God tells us as we study it, as we cross-reference it. But the ultimate truth is Christ the Messiah. Paul wrote elsewhere, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. That's, a, that's Paul's perspective. And Paul was a man who could have been very, very high up in this world's things. He had a career path that was going places. And he says, do you know what? I regard all that as garbage. And the word for garbage is a very strong word that I won't pronounce in front of you today. It's a very strong word that Paul uses there. That all this great thing that would have been mine is real absolute rubbish because I've come to know Christ. And that's made everything worthwhile. Did you notice that on the calendar on Monday of this week? I did, because I was studying the passage, of course, it struck out me. So I looked at it and said, oh, that's my passage. Then I said, no, it's not, that's Ephesians. Then I said, no, it's not, that's Colossians. The calendar got it wrong on Monday. It is Colossians, of course. Um, but that was the reading on Monday morning on the Golden Bells calendar. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A former Hindu was asked to explain what there was in Christianity that he, that he had not found in Hinduism. He answered it was Christ. But what teaching or doctrine is there that is distinct from your former faith, he was asked again. It wasn't a teaching or doctrine, he replied, it was the living Christ. Perhaps I haven't made myself clear, the questioner objected. What is the difference in Christianity from the philosophy of Hinduism which caused you to embrace Christianity? It was Christ, was still the answer. Not just a creed, doctrine or philosophy, but a transforming Christ. Is that your experience too?